I am happy to be rejoined this morning by Charlie Pruitt, whose mom and dad worked on the Manhattan Project, the project that was inspired by Oppenheimer, the man who the movie is about now. So Charlie's got some memories of what was going on back then from what he's heard from his parents, who, by the way, were morning show guests here many times back when they were alive. Charlie, good to get you back here today to talk about this important topic. But I think that the most interesting thing is about the stories you might have heard from your parents about the whole Manhattan Project, which is the A-bomb, of course, and later the H-bomb in uh, World War II. Good morning. Thanks for coming in for today. What was your thoughts on the movie Oppenheimer? Did it, was it an emotional experience for you? Because you know your parents were so involved in that. Well, good morning, Wayne. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie, and, and certainly it made me think back to the stories that my parents had told me. Um, I was, I'm sort of the old school, I like a, a linear progression of a movie, and uh, so this one sort of jumped around a good deal, but uh, it was okay, I could follow it. Uh, I it's unfortunate. I think that it's been uh, outclassed by the Barbie movie. But, but well, you talk about apples and oranges. That's two <laughs> two different things there together. By the way, you talked about jumping in and out of order. The black and white, the color. Explain what you mean by that, and what the method was they used to tell the story. Well, basically, again, as I said, I like a linear uh, type of movie. One that starts off at the present or the past and moves straight line this one sort of jumped back and forth a number of times and uh, as far as the black and white and the color i'm not absolutely certain of this but what i understand was that the scenes that were in black and white were actual uh documented cases uh, of course reenacted those that were in color were sort of well we think this is what happened but we're not real sure uh, and they didn't clarify that. No. You're no. led to kind of connect the dots when you see the color, black and white color sequences. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I uh, also, again, as I say, whenever there is a jumping around, I go back to the old westerns where they say, meanwhile, back on the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of my cue to think, okay, well, there's some time change here. So, so Charlie, what exactly was the role of your parents? Charles and Virginia Virginia in the actual Manhattan Project? Well, there was, uh, uh, they each had a separate role. Uh, Dad basically was a chemist when he graduated from college. And uh, so he went to work for DuPont. And he did a number of different lab testings and so on and so forth. Mom, um, she actually was working also for DuPont and working with development of nitrates, gunpowders. Uh, when the war broke out, uh, Dad was, uh, a little while later on, Dad was transferred from where he was working up to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And when he went up for the interview, the uh, people said, don't tell anyone where you're going, not even your wife. So dad went up for the interview, came back. My mom asked him, well, where did you go? He said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. But a few weeks later, they both went up to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. In Oak Ridge, uh, dad started testing the uh, U-235 uranium, enriched uranium, 
to make sure it led up to the specifications that were set by the company. Mom continued into the nitrate, uh, working in the nitrate section. And uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, she was testing different batches of powder for their strength and their consistency by loading them into 50 caliber machine gun bullets loading the bullets into a machine gun that was set in concrete and aimed down range at a target. And she'd fire one batch, reload another batch, fire that, and then compare the strengths and the accuracies of the, of the shot. Um, it's kind of hard for me to imagine my mother as uh, this nice little old lady sitting behind a 50 caliber machine gun. What's the shell you brought in this morning? Is that from that story? That's from that story. That's the 50 caliber. Um, basically, 50 calibers were used uh, as sort of anti-aircraft ammunition. And this is a, a shell that she actually loaded herself. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, she was supposed to take it from her workplace, but we do have it some 75 years later. Well, I'll keep our little secret here. Yeah, no, okay. I won't tell anybody about it at all, but it's about six inches long. It's brown. It's got a very sharp point to it, and I, I did notice some numbers on the bottom. I wasn't sure if each one of those shells has a different – it's four different numbers in my speculation, and I don't know if this is right or not, is that they put different numbers in all of them so they could trace them after the fact, like ballistics tests and things like that. But I guess we'll never know about that. Charlie, where were you born? I was born in Hanford, Washington. Um, and and uh, not actually in the plant itself, but in the Army Hospital associated with it. And that was uh, right at the end of the war. And uh, actually, after mom had to stop working once she found out she was pregnant, they didn't want her anywhere around anything that could be potentially dangerous. So, yeah, she, uh, she pregnant, had me, and uh, when, when, after I was born, dad, and the war was over, dad said, well, that's it, we're, we're, I'm going to quit. This is not something I want to continue doing. And they said, sorry, everything's frozen. Critical jobs were frozen for six months. So immediately at the end of six months, um, he, he quit the job. And uh, so I was in Hanford for about six months. Uh, but again, I was six months old, so I don't remember any of it. Well, connect the dots between Oak Ridge and Hanford. They got transferred there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Oak Ridge was again uh, working with the enriched uranium, and in Hanford they were working with plutonium. And Dad, when he was moved from Oak Ridge to uh, Hanford, it was still pretty much the same thing. He was testing the uh, quantity and quality of the of the uh, material. Um, there were a number of times when he was pretty unhappy with the lack of safety that was going on at the plant. I guess OSHA was not a thing, especially not in World War II. Um, number of times, well, one, one story, um, they all wore radiation badges. And it was just a piece of film that was unexposed and uh, sealed in a light-proof paper. And one night when he left his work, he just took off his badge and set it down. 
sort of not realizing that he'd set it down next to a radioactive sample. <laughs> the next day he came in, put it back on. They tested it a day or two later, woke him up in the middle of the night, took him to the base hospital because his badge was way overexposed. The and badge he wasn't wearing at the that time. he was, wasn't yeah. wearing, yeah. yeah. So then he, he remembered that, yeah, he'd taken it off, set it down, and it was next to a radioactive sample. So Your dad was a peach, and I knew him pretty well. We had him on the air a lot, and we can get to this later on, but a lot of the reasons he was on, I was talking about anti-war protests, things like that. So he went from a guy that was involved in World War II to anti-war, and now Charlie's holding up a picture of his dad, Toting a blue peace flag with a dove on it. Now, where exactly is that picture? Is this that... is in the boombox parade. Well, how about that? And and I think it's important to note that he just passed away a couple of years ago at 102, I think it was. Right, exactly. And your mom lived to a ripe old age as well. She was 92. So, obviously, they weren't technically exposed to radiation, not that it affected their health at all. Was there any cancer or anything like that involved in their lives? No, no, but Dad sort of joked every once in a while that maybe he'd been exposed to so much that it killed whatever was bad in him. <laughs> I mean, now, of course, they're using radiation to treat cancer, so who knows. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, uh, another thing about the exposure. There was some, uh, in the radioactive pile, the reactor, uh, Dad was supposed to go and take samples of that and go right into the, or not go into the, but remove from the reactor samples of plutonium. And he started saying, whoa, whoa, uh, even though I'm exposed only briefly taking the sample out, that's still way too much. And several of the other scientists that were also doing the same kind of thing said, yep, you're right, we, we shouldn't be doing this. They went to the management said, no, we don't want to do this, it's too dangerous, and you've got to work out something else. Management said, fine, yeah, it's good. And the next day, they had people who knew absolutely nothing about radiation doing the same work. So again, the war effort uh, probably pretty seriously hurt some people that never were in combat. And to a degree, from where you sat, the son of parents who worked the Manhattan Project, do you realize that we are actually pretty lucky that we made it work? I mean, I realize bad things happen, and we'll talk Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the like, but still, the fact that there's a lot of things could have gone wrong, but they got it right. Is right. that is that Oppenheimer? Is, is, is he kind of the reason why it went right? That he made sure that things were done according to Hoyle? Yeah, Oppenheimer was uh, certainly the, the head of the program, uh, General Groves was... Uh, Matt Damon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the role played by Matt Damon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was certainly the uh, the one that, uh, you know, sort of said, well, we got to get this done regardless of the cost, and he pushed it through. Dad's take on General Groves was he didn't like him at all. I guess he came through the lab that Dad was at one time, and uh, Dad was... He was not prone to using uh, harsh language, but <laughs> a couple of times he did about General Groves. Um, yeah, it, it uh, things were things were kind of a little shaky there. But Oppenheimer did do a lot to try to pull it together, hold it together, coordinate the whole thing, and he did get it 
ultimately got it right. And your mom met Oppenheimer? Mom uh, apparently was taking a class or some sort of orientation, and Oppenheimer showed up briefly. Uh, I mean, she meeting him i'm not sure that he had, she actually went up and shook his hand but at least uh, she was in the same room with him and and uh you know she did see him certainly now this is where we go from black and white radio to color radio like the movie did but do you have any thoughts opinions whatever about the actual dropping of the bomb on the enola gay, enola gay tibbets and the like they showed so much detail in the Oppenheimer movie about how they did the test in Los Alamos, but then nothing at all about all the special stuff had to be done in Alamos to make sure that bomb went off. I wanted to know, wait a minute, they're dropping this thing out of a plane. It's got to ignite when it falls out. This isn't a, some controlled experiment thing. I never got that answer. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it was radio controlled, or it was so that when the bomb reached a certain height, that automatically detonated. Uh, and the reason for that was that a ground burst uh, isn't nearly as spread out as one that's in the air, because the uh, blast sort of comes down towards the ground. Um, yeah, I. I don't. I don't know. I. I think that uh, as far as dropping the bomb goes, uh, it was suggested by a number of scientists that in fact they should have picked a uninhabited island out in Tokyo Bay or someplace and said, "Okay, folks," and then drop the bomb and say, "Look, you see what we've got. Uh, it's time to give up on the war effort, or we're going to use it." I think maybe some type of warning could have been given. Well, in retrospect, even after Hiroshima went off, they didn't buy it. It took the second one over Nagasaki that finally made them go, oh, this isn't going to work for us at all. But yeah, by the way, spoiler alert, they didn't talk about the Enola Gay. They didn't show the bomb drop. They didn't show the results, except images in Oppenheimer's mind. And actually, I believe that was coming out of a hearing later on. Right. When they were actually, no, it was, it was like a rally where people were applauding him for getting the job done. Mm -hmm. And with all these people cheering and smiling and clapping and things, Oppenheimer is now having images of the horror that he created. Did, did your parents have any of that? Did they talk to you at all about maybe the fact that they worked on a project that killed so many people? I know that turned your parents into anti-war activists, but I wonder whether they had that same image that Oppenheimer was portrayed as having in the movie. Yeah, I, I, after the bomb was dropped, it, uh, Dad do pretty much what had happened and he was very concerned a little bit later on well considerably later on when i was in high school i was assigned to read the book hiroshima and dad said okay that's your assignment you can read it but not in my house so i read it at school and not here not at the house um, what else? I, I don't know about that book. Tell me more about it. What, what, what else t did you take from that? Oh, it gave a very, uh, <laughs> very detailed description of how the bomb affected a lot of the people in Hiroshima. Um, at one point, uh, it talks about, well, one example, I hope this isn't too rough. Uh, one example, the uh, narrator in the book is walking by an anti-aircraft crew on the ground and 
they didn't actually fire at the Enola Gay because it was just one plane. They were used to lots and lots mm. of planes coming over. So they didn't even bother trying to shoot it down. They thought it was a weather observation plane. And they were looking upward when the blast went off. And the narrator in the book, as he walks by, the soldiers are saying, oh, our eyes, our eyes. And he said, let me see. And they opened their eyes and the the eyeballs, burned eyeballs, sort of rolled down their cheeks. Uh, that kind of detail of description was really pretty, pretty graphic. And Dad had not read the book, but he knew what was in it, basically. Is this the book by John Hershey? I, I guess. I don't remember um, the author. I just Googled it, and it says a 1946 book by American author John Hershey tells the stories of six survivors of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It's regarded as one of the earliest examples of new journalism in which the storytelling techniques of fiction are adapted to non-fiction reporting, which kind of sounds like the movie Oppenheimer. Hey, right. Same basic idea. Your dad went from working on the Manhattan Project, building this horrific bomb, which certainly played a role in the end of World War II, to becoming a major peace guy, a guy that was going on. I remember he went to New York. He was involved in rallies down there. We talked about how he was in the boombox parade carrying a peace sign with a dove on it and things like that. Was was the peace movement an anti-war movement something was talked about a lot at home, especially when you were growing up as a kid? I, I don't know that we, uh, again, I, we, we talked about Dad not letting me uh, read the book Hiroshima. And uh, he was... At least not on his watch. Uh, no, right, right. Yeah, not at home. Uh, and he made it very clear that he was opposed to nuclear weapons and he was certainly anti-war and uh, was very much into the peace movement. You're right. Mom was uh, very supportive of him, but she didn't actually get out and do the protesting herself. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> While we're talking about the two of them, totally off topic here for this morning, but about 25 years ago, your dad called me. I already knew him. We'd done shows in the past, including anti-war protest shows and things like that. And he called me and said, I want to do a show about Alzheimer's and love. And I figured it was some support group for his wife who had pretty far advanced Alzheimer's. They came in. It was a New Year's Eve. I want to say about 1994. They came in. Your dad was sitting where you're sitting right now. And your mom sat over here by our newsroom window in a chair. And she wasn't capable of doing an interview because of the advanced Alzheimer's. And I had no preparation for that show at all. He didn't tell me where they were going. I found out live on the air that it's not some support group like an Alcoholics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous, something like that. It was that he understood that she has no short-term memory whatsoever. So his goal, as I recall it, was to tell her that he loves her a thousand times a day. He did it on the air about a hundred times that morning as well. In other words, give her some short-term happiness in a difficult time of life. We turned that into a 45-minute interview, just the two of us talking about how much he loves his wife. And that was such a heartwarming show. I got such phenomenal response to that. 
don't know what you can add to that, but that that was a very important show in my radio history here at WILI with your parents. Right. Well, yeah, I I was teaching in Alaska, and I retired early at 55 to come back and help Dad with Mom. And I must say that uh, certainly I saw this love between them, <clears throat> and I really... Uh, I, I tried to help out as much as I could, but certainly Dad was the main supporter of my mom. Um, yeah, yeah. Speaking of my mom and getting back to uh, Oak Ridge a little bit, uh, or not Oak Ridge, to Hanford, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of very, very uh, tight security around and signs that were saying, you know, what you see here, what you do here, what you hear here stays here when you leave here and it was the jobs were pretty much compartmentalized in that all the people that worked in one lab knew what was going on of course in that lab but they didn't know what was going on in the next one and so on and so forth so one according to the family story here uh one day my father said to my mom well you know what what are you doing in your section i'm i'm uh, doing this and she said oh charles you know i, I can't talk about that and he said oh come on virginia you know i i'm not a japanese or a german spy you can you can tell me and she said well okay if you promise you won't tell that i've mentioned this to you and he said nope nope it's okay and she said well, we're making blackout jackets for fireflies. <laughs> Dad didn't appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, blackouts were a big thing at the time where you closed the curtains and so on. So she, yeah, she tried to put one over on Dad. I'm, I'm sure that at some point they did really discuss what they were doing. But it was, uh, yeah, the secrecy was really pretty tight show and tell you brought out some pictures during our break here today black and white pictures i think there's three of them to talk about so give a little play-by-play of what you're looking at there looks like mom and dad having dinner yeah this is a picture of my parents uh having dinner at uh at uh hanford washington hanford washington yeah the plutonium plant and they were uh living in a quonset hut and actually, I was again born out in Hanford. Um, Mom doesn't look particularly pregnant in this one, so it must have been <laughs> earlier on. Uh, there's another picture of just Dad sitting at a table. Um, it's the same table that they were using for dinner. And he's writing down notes and so on for his, his work. On his iPad. Yeah. Well, it certainly is a pad, a pad of paper. Yeah. And he had his eyes on it. You're right. It's, it's, it's 1944's iPad. Right, yeah. exactly. And then uh, this is just a, those two pictures were taken by uh, the, someone in there in uh, Hanford. This picture is actually from Los Alamos, and this is a picture of the, quote, it was referred to as the gadget, the atomic bomb itself. Uh, it's huge. This was, of course, been the first one that they were going to test. Uh, this would have never fit into an airplane this size, but the first one they made it, uh, had to make it larger, and it's just covered with wires and cables those are all going to the different detonation points 
I'm really glad. Any idea who that guy is sitting next to it on the left? I have no idea. He's not your dad. No, no. Oh, dad was never at Los Alamos. Right. Well, I, I was really glad that in that particular black and white picture, they had that guy who I think is sitting down, right? Yes. Yeah, he's not standing. But he's sitting down at the base of it. And that just gives perspective on how big this thing is. Now, if the guy were standing up, he'd probably be twice the size he is there sitting down. He's, this thing would still be several feet taller than he is. A big round ball. And as Charlie said... There's all kinds of wires and cables going over this thing. I don't know, connecting one part to another, I guess, is how that worked out. Yeah, all so. the detonation points. Uh, this was a, what was called the implosion bomb, where you had, actually, if uh, in uranium, and I'm not sure about what the critical mass of plutonium is, but in uranium, it's about 22 pounds. If you have 22 pounds of U-235 in any one place at any one time, boom, you got a bomb. Um, but bringing the, the parts together to make that critical mass of 22 pounds is difficult because as you start getting the parts closer and closer together, they start heating up, tremendous amounts of radiation being given off, and there's actually sort of a little, almost a repulsing kind of uh, effect. So they used explosives, and that's sort of where my mother was working with the uh, uh, nitrates. They use explosives to bring the parts together. And in this one, it was an implosion bomb. You had a, a core of plutonium, and then you had a cylinder or a, uh, a ball of plutonium around it. And you had to bring that ball together with the, the central core, and that's where they used the explosives to cause it to implode. One question I had was watching the Oppenheimer movie, watching the test at Los Alamos, and they had all kinds of barricades and stuff so that the implosion didn't get them. But you look at the horrific damage, death, destruction in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the thought enters your mind, wait a minute, why didn't that happen to those guys in Los Alamos? Were they just far enough away? And by the way, were they all exposed to radiation like the folks in Japan were? Yeah, some amount. Uh, I'm sure they received some radiation. And they were, you know, all the, the people, a lot of them were inside of concrete blockhouses, which protected them somewhat. I think uh, they were also quite a distance away. Um, and the explosion was a little bit more than they thought it was going to be. <laughs> A little later on, when they moved to a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb, uh, <laughs> that went off, the first one, and it went off with more than twice the power they thought, and it almost got some of the scientists on that one. You know what line I thought of when I saw that go off? And you're right, that in the movie they portray that, oops, that was a little bigger than we thought. Reminded me from the line, Butch casting the Sundance Kid. Think you used enough dynamite there, Butch? <laughs> when they blew up the train, <laughs> one of the one of the better all-time movie lines there from Robert Redford. So yeah, it's a great great stuff to talk about today. And I think the one thing this movie has done is bring the significance of the Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer, of course, and the bomb into perspective in today's technology. Because I think that a lot of people think that is yesterday's news. But you know what? We might be speaking Japanese now if it weren't for that bomb, the same way we might be speaking German now if it weren't for D-Day. Yeah. I think there's a significant parallel in all of that. Sure, sure. So tell me about the, uh, the, the 10 scientists who sent a letter to Oppenheimer, or to their supervisor. Right. When, uh, when 
people started really realizing what they were actually producing. Again, coming out of this compartmentalized uh, regiment that they had going, when people started putting it together and figuring out what they were doing, a number of the scientists, uh, 10 as a matter of fact that Dad was associated with, wrote a letter saying, look, we know what we're doing. We don't think this is ethical. We don't want to be responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people. And, um, of course, <laughs> little did they know that, that uh, you know, it was going to extend much, much farther than just the atomic bomb they were making. It was going to be uh, ultimately, eventually, like we have thousands of nuclear weapons that are hundreds or thousands of times stronger than that first bomb. But they sent this letter saying, we want to, we don't want to be part of this. And the response came back with, fine, you can all quit. If you do, we can write and put it in writing that within less than a week, you will be back here doing the same job, but getting private's pay as opposed to civilian pay. I see another parallel between Oppenheimer and your parents, especially your dad, in the sense that the movie does do a lot on this, that after World War II, after what happened in Japan, Oppenheimer wanted disarmament. He wanted the, the nuclear proliferation, non-proliferation treaty between the nations and so forth, your dad spent a lot of his life fighting for the same kind of thing, didn't exactly, he? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they really did. I think Oppenheimer's thoughts and comments at the time when he watched the first blast, they keep sort of coming back to me and echoing that um, I have become the destroyer of worlds. I've become death, death the destroyer of worlds. And uh, I think that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, we've we've got and right now, I heard in the news this morning where North Korea is just stepping up the production of their nuclear weapons. Uh, it's it's in one way maybe it it the bombs did something in that yes they killed a lot of people, but we've had this uneasy kind of truce on using them ever since they were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but we have tested and created much, much stronger bombs now. Um, yeah, that's... And let's have some more show and tell, which always works well on radio, but in this case, I think it will. You've got a framed collage photo there. Upper left, that's your dad, back in the day. Doesn't right. look at all like the Charlie Pruitt I knew. <laughs> now, what are the other images in there, including the one in the middle? One in the middle is a, is a photograph of the first bomb, the Trinity bomb, uh, the one that Dad produced some of the materials for. And it's a picture that was taken 25 thousandths of a second after detonation. And it's already spread out oh, probably about... Uh, Oh, about 300 yards and across, and it looks like an angry blister or an angry something, this red bulging thing. Or what I, the way I looked at it, it looks like popcorn on the lower part, <laughs> right? and it's covered by dripping caramel on the top. 
Right. But of course, that's a small thing. If you had a thing of popcorn while you're watching the movie, this is much bigger, yeah. just a, uh, diameter-wise. Again, this is a uh, hundred-yard measure there, so it's about three hundred yards across at the bottom. And of course, this is plasma, super heated, extremely hot and under pressure gases that are being released and radiation. And also in the picture frame, I have a rock, small rock that's there, and it's called Trinitonite. And this is, a, the government geologist went into the blast area a few days later and collected some of the samples of the sand underneath the explosion. And this is sand that's been fused together. And at one time it was extremely radioactive, although now it has degenerated down to the point where it's just slightly more radioactive than the background radiation. Charlie, one final question. If your parents saw the Oppenheimer movie, if they were alive and could see it, what would their takeaway be? What do you think they would think of it? Uh, well, again, I think they would they would agree with Oppenheimer and his final conclusions and that uh, wanting to ban bombs and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know exactly. I, I know Dad Dad uh, thought a good deal of Oppenheimer, although he never met him. He certainly heard about him. Um, but I think I think yeah, they would have approved of the movie. Well, I approved of it, and I certainly approve of you sharing your thoughts, especially of your parents' role in that. I love your parents, and Charlie, thank you for coming in this morning and sharing your memories well, of that. Well, thank you, Wayne. Charlie Pruitt, our guest this morning. His mom and dad worked on the Manhattan Project, which eventually played a role in the end of World War II.